0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. So glad to see you. Hey, Jolene is here this morning with her daughter, Courtney. Would you stand for us and let us walk in? Love on you a little bit. Good morning. We're so proud of them. You know, uh, there are some regulars that work for Habitat volunteer on a regular basis on all the homes that are done. and, And I overheard them one day when we were there working. And they said uh, that Jolene was the hardest working homeowner that they'd seen in all their experiences with Habitat. So good for you, sweetheart. She was a champ. Jolene's job uh, has her working through the nights. And so she would work all night and then show up on site and work some more, work several hours every day on on the house. And so we're not only happy for this new house for her, but we're just proud of you. And love you so much and your, your good kids. Courtney's here, and Corey and Sean are in the nurseries and junior church, so it's fun to have them with us today. And I want to say welcome to everyone over in the sanctuary this morning. I know that the simulcast uh, has a nice, uh, good crowd over there as well, and so we're happy that you're here on Easter Sunday. Welcome to Easter at Union Chapel. You know, Easter is all about change. Think about it God took the worst possible situation, which was the death of his own son. And he brought good out of it. He actually changed the world through it. It's an amazing thing. Easter changed all of history. In fact, every time you write a date on a document or a check or something, it actually is a a focal point on the life of Jesus because we're A.D. 2014, and that B.C. A.D. separation is the split in history demarcated by the life of Jesus Christ. He changed everything. And Easter is about that change. The Bible says if we were to put... be put on friendly terms with God. In other words, God's not mad at us anymore. And put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son. Just think how our lives could expand and deepen by means of his resurrected life. So the resurrection today is about change. And by the way, the purpose of Easter is not for religious people. You may be confused about that. If you're not a particularly religious person, or you have little or no religious background, you don't really feel that connected to God and you rarely go to church, well, congratulations, because this is your holiday. This is your deal. Because Easter is not about religious folks. It's about everybody that God loves and wants to have a relationship with. So uh, God's not all that interested in religion anyway. He's not about rules. He's not about regulations. He's not about rituals. He's not about that. Jesus said that I came for religious outsiders, not the in crowd. The Bible says, I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders, an invitation to a changed life. Changed from the inside out. Well, we want to read the Bible today. It's our custom here at Union Chapel to do so. And one of the resurrection uh, narratives is found in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read John chapter 20, the first 10 verses there, as we see the resurrection depicted from John's perspective If you have a Bible, turn there to John 20. If not, we'll project these words on the screen. And it is our custom to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, would you do so as we respect God's word? John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And we might just pause right there for a moment. This phrase, the one Jesus loved, the disciple Jesus loved, that's not the first time this appears in the Gospel of John. And John is actually referring to himself. I'm the one he loved best. And so he he wants us to know that. I was the favorite. And so she said, Mary Magdalene, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now we just pause right here. John, who's written this gospel, wants us all to know he's the fastest runner. <laughs> he's, he's, he's the love, loved one the most, and he's also the fastest. Good to know. And he bent over and looked in, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just to reiterate that I'm I'm the fastest runner, also went inside, he saw and believed. So not only is he the favorite, the loved one, the most loved, he's the fastest runner, and he's also the sharpest because he's the first to believe. So we got it. We're hearing you, John. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, and then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now God inspires us today through this important moment in history. Thanks so much. What do you want to change? What about your life would you like to change? In 1997 it was Tiger Woods first year on the professional golf tour. Tiger won the Masters that year and four other tournaments. He made $2 million in prize money and $60 million in endorsements. So his first year in pro sports, he earned $62 million. It was a good start. <laughs> Pretty good year. At the end of his first year, he went to his uh, golf coach and he said, look, I want to change my swing. The golf coach says, you just made $62 million with the swing you've got. Why do you want to change? He said, I think I can be better. And he said, well, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of effort. I mean, really, you want to... And so Tiger Woods devoted himself. He videotaped himself and watched tape. He lifted weights. This is when he started putting on muscle on his frame. And he hit thousands and thousands of balls. In the next 18 months, he only won one tournament. But after those 18 months, the next 14 tournaments that he played in, he won 10 of them. At one point, he'd won several in a row. And in the years 2000 and 2001, Tiger Woods became the first golfer in history to actually own all four major golf tournaments at the same time. It was an amazing accomplishment. And all because he wanted to go from good, great really, to even better. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, of course, with Tiger, uh, we know that the last few years might indicate that he should be making some changes in other areas of his life as well. And I hope he's working on that. And you probably think you're a pretty good person. And I bet you are. Good life, good family, good career, nice person, great place, good home, live in a nice neighborhood, all of that. And you're probably right. I have no doubt. You're probably a pretty nice person. But it's nothing compared to what you could be. I want you to think about that. You're only using a fraction of your God-given potential. And that's what Easter is all about. It's about going from being a good person to a better person. To improving on your life let me tell you how you don't become a better person you don't do it by trying harder you don't do it by struggling more and wrestling with the issues more Um, you have to do other things to employ God's help you know lots of people are interested in your health these days have you noticed exercise equipment all kinds of diets special diets uh, these exercise videos confession is good for the soul Um, about 12 weeks ago members of our staff here at Union Chapel decided that we were going to do a a workout video together as a as a a ministry team great okay pastor Greg you wanna come and help us I said is there a guy my age on the video but no but you're exceptional you're you're unusual you can and so they they persuade I got in it and we've been doing Sean T T25 (laughs) You know, that sexy body workout video. (laughs) And for 12 weeks we've been doing it. There's three levels. We started with alpha level, and that was, you know, that was pretty rigorous. And then the beta level, and that was pushing me right to the edge. And now we're into the gamma level, and the numbers have greatly shrunk down. There's only four or five of us still doing it. And, And I'm one of them. And gamma level for me, uh, the best word to describe it is torture. <laughs> well, the inevitable happened just this last week. There were four of us guys working out that day. No, no women were with us that day. And, and at the end of the workout, we're toweling off and trying to rehydrate. And one of the guys walks over and he goes, bam, just check that out. He pulls his shirt back, you know. So everybody's flexing their muscles. And then the inevitable happens. One of the guys goes, and look at my abs, and he pulls up his t-shirt, and he said, look, I can see definition in my abs, and you know, and someone else says, nice six-pack, man, that's great. So everybody's pulling up their shirt until it was my turn, <laughs> and they looked at me, and they, said, and they said, well, how about you, and I said, look, you guys are developing nice six-packs, I'm keeping my keg, and I just lifted it up, and was. Like, everybody should have a goal. Here's my real point. Physical exercise is a good thing for your health, but it can't really change you as a person by starting on the externals. You don't change just because you look different. You don't you don't change just because you're trying to behave a little bit differently. That's not real change. A lot of times we think if we if we just change the way we look, our hairstyle or our dress code or the car we drive, that somehow that'll change us. Remember Ron Artest, former player for the Pacers here? He was one of the guys apparently has a little problem with impulse control and went into the stands in Detroit, you know, that night in that brawl. It was was horrible, the malice in the palace. Ron got traded to the Lakers. and So he's been out in California, and Ron thought he would kind of change his image by changing his name. And so he had his name illegally changed from Ron Artest to Meta World Peace. Look, I'm not buying it, Ron. I don't know. You can call yourself whatever you you want. Same thing happened with a, a super... A superstar in pop culture today, a rapper called Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy. You know, Some of you know Puff Daddy. Puff Daddy went through a, a bad stretch a few years ago. He got in some trouble with the law, and then he broke up with Jennifer Lopez. Now, I confess, that's, that's got to be a bad day. And <laughs> who can blame him for being sad that day? Then he got in trouble again with the law. Apparently, he was changing lanes too quickly on his scooter. They pull him over. It was tough on Puff. I mean, he was (laughs) having a hard time. So he decided he needed a change, and so he was going to change his name and change his nickname. And so Sean Combs went from Puff Daddy to P. Diddy. P. Diddy. So now we call him P or Diddy or P. Diddy. You know, and if it were only that easy... You know, if I could only change my name, that would somehow change my character. That would be great, but we all know that's not true. He could call himself Doo-Wah Diddy, for all I care, or (laughs) Puff the Magic Dragon. It still doesn't change who he is. So changing the externals doesn't change you as a person. You've got to do the work on the inside. Let me just give you three brief thoughts this morning about how to really experience genuine change from the inside out. This is, this is what Easter is all about. Change from the perspective of Easter. Here's the first thought. You'll see it on the outline that you have in your bulletin. Number one, open your mind to God's power. Open your mind to God's power. Now, we've just been going through a series here at Union Chapel called "Transformed." It kind of goes along with the activities that we're doing in the community with homes and properties and transformation and we've been talking about how to transform ourselves, and we used as our theme verse Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind or changing the way you think, your attitude and your thought process in, in, the, in the midst of change. What I'm suggesting to us right now is that we need to start thinking differently about the, the opportunity to consider the possibility of considering god 's presence in our lives to to let your mind move toward god 's power it 's uh, it's very interesting that uh, when we try harder, try to do better, make resolutions you know a new year 's resolutions only, only lasts about two weeks that 's about how far willpower will will carry you and frankly, would you just admit? If, if all the changes you want to make in your life were possible on your own power, and your own strength, your own ability, you would have already made the changes. But there are some things in life that are just too hard. The obstacle is too great. I mean, there's just too much pressure. There's, there's just too much resistance in my own p- potential as a person to actually get through to that level of change. And we need outside help. And God is saying one thing you need to do is consider, open your mind to the possibility that I exist that God exists, that God actually loves you, that the possibility that God knows you. He knows everything about you and yet he still cares about you and, and stands ready to help you. I mean, you have to open your mind to the possibility that God really is real and he cares about you and stands ready to help you, assist you in your life. I've talked to thousands of people in my life and occasionally I'll meet with people, as you can imagine, who are going through difficult times and and sometimes these folks aren't connected well to God. They say, so, you know, my relationship is sour, my marriage is bad, my career is going south. And, and, and I might say to such a person, oh, have you ever thought about asking God for some help? Have you ever prayed about this? Invited God into the situation to give you wisdom and, and, and power. And sometimes people look at you like, what planet are you from? What do you mean? Pray to God about this. But it's exactly what we need to do because we need God's help. We really do. Occasionally, someone will say to me, oftentimes men, they'll push back. and say, well, doesn't God say that God helps those who help themselves? And the answer is no. God doesn't say that. That's actually a quote from Ben Franklin. God helps those who help themselves. What the Bible teaches is that God helps those who don't know how to help themselves. God helps those who don't know what to do. God helps those who come to the end of their rope. God stands ready to help people who who realize they're helpless. God helps those who can't help themselves. This is the promise of Scripture. This is the way that, that God operates. The Bible says, many are far away from the life of God. They have shut their minds against them, and they can't understand His ways. In other words, the power and the ability that He has available to them. What causes, what causes people to close off their mind to God? Well, there are a few things that we can mention. One is hurt. Maybe you've been hurt by another person, maybe even a churchy kind of person, religious kind of person, Christian person, and you've reasoned, well, if that's the way God's people are going to treat me, forget God. But Let me just be forthright for you a second. It's, it's actually pretty dumb to blame God for what people do. It's not smart. One of my life... One of my life uh, moorings, you know, like an irrefutable law of my life personally is that I, I refuse to allow the weakness of another person to keep me from God's best in my life. I, I know what I'm like. I, I know I'm just a regular guy. I got stinky feet. I fail all the time. I know I'm not, I'm not, I just have, I, I, I'm just so far from where I should be. And I get that. And I assume you're a human being just like I am. And you're going to, you're going to act like a human being. And you're going to mess up, and you're going to fail, and you may even offend me in the process. And so my, one of my philosophies is, I'm not going to allow, allow your foolishness to keep me from my relationship with God. I don't want to blame God for stuff you do, and you shouldn't blame God for stuff I do. Because God, God will never fail you. He'll never let you down. So, nevertheless, it happens, though, that people get hurt, and they blame God, and so that keeps them closed-minded toward God. Another thing is, is the issue of pride. You know, for, for some people, they say, I don't want to be open to God. I want to be God. I want to run my own life. I want to, I want to manage my own affairs. Look, I, I, I want to just control and manage and make all the choices and decisions about my life. And so sometimes pride and ego can keep you close-minded toward God. Another thing is fear. There are people, let me, let me talk to all the Christian churchy people in the room right now for a minute. All you folks who are kind of immersed in the Christian culture. I know that's a lot of you. Here's something that you should be aware of. There are people who, who don't practice a, a, a meaningful faith like you do. They don't come to church. They don't do these sorts of things. And one of the reasons for, that they're closed-minded toward God is because they're afraid that God may force them to start, start behaving like you. I'm sorry about that, but people are afraid. I mean, there, there are folks who won't have an open mind at all toward God because they looked at Christian television one time, and they saw people dress funny with big hair saying Jesus all the time, and it just freaked them out. They said, <laughs> if I open my, my mind to the possibility of God, he may make me like that. They just can't tolerate it, can't imagine it. So they stay closed-minded. But if you really want to change, listen, you've got to open up. Because God loves you. God made you to love Him and for Him to love you. And so you've got to open your mind to God's power. It's, it's the only way to get there. So what is it that seems impossible to change in your life? Have you thought about that? I asked you that question earlier. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe you tend to exaggerate. Maybe you get easily angered. You want to be more patient. Maybe it's a relationship in your life that's falling apart. You've worked and worked on it, but it doesn't seem to make any difference. Maybe complete this sentence. I don't think I'll ever be able to what? I don't think I'll ever be able to marry or remarry or forget that person or forgive them for what they did to me to get over that hurt. I don't think I'll ever be able to get a fresh start. I don't think I'll ever be able to fulfill that dream that I've had. What is it for you? in that blank I don't think I'll ever be able to you think like that because you're looking at it and your situation from the point of view from your potential and the resource that you have instead of looking at it from God's point of view because God sees you and your needs and my needs completely different than we look at them we look at them and we say man I just don't think I'll ever be able to get that I don't think I'll ever be able to get over that I don't think I'll ever get get past that the God says, wait a minute I can give you power actually deal with that that thing that holds you back God says if you'll open your mind to me I'll help you see it the Bible says I pray that you'll begin to understand how incredibly great God's power is to help those who believe him it's the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead now I hope you heard that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power God says and promises to make available to us at the point of our need at the point of that problem at that crisis in your life. And so here's what we know. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and would you admit the power necessary to raise that boy back to life and resuscitate him and resurrect him, that took a little power? Yeah, the same power that God used to resurrect Jesus from the dead, he's this, it's the same power that can resurrect a dead marriage, can resurrect a dead career, can resurrect a dead dream. This is the same power from God who can do anything. And so this is the promise, the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is available to you. So be encouraged by that. Open your mind to the possibility of God's power in your life. Well, here's the second thing that we might consider with this Easter celebration with regard to real change, and that is we need to open our heart to God's grace. Open your heart to God's grace. Now, what is grace? You know, you hear that word bantered about uh, in religious circles all the time. amazing grace, God's grace. What is grace? Well, let me take a shot at it. Grace is when God gives you what you need instead of what you deserve. That's grace. Grace is when God forgives you even before you ask. That's grace. Grace is when God says, come on home. I'm not mad at you. That's grace. Grace is when God forgives you and then gives you a second chance and then a third chance and then a fourth chance and then the hundredth chance and then the 1,000th chance. That's grace. Grace is the power God gives you to do the changes in your life, those things that you can't do on your own. That's grace. And we don't normally experience grace from other human beings. I read this story from David Hagler. It came uh, through the New York Times. And David Hagler was a referee and an umpire at one stage of his life and one day he was driving too fast in the winter time in the snow through boulder colorado and a police officer pulls him over and david hagler tries to talk the police officer out of this ticket because he was going to give him a ticket he said please i'm afraid my insurance is going to go up i'm normally a good driver i know i was going too fast please please let me off he said i begged him to let me go And finally, the officer handed him the ticket and said, well, you can take it to court if you want to. That's all I can do. So fast forward now to the next spring, the first game of the next baseball season, and David Hagler was umpiring behind home plate, and the first batter up was that policeman. He said, I recognized him, and he recognized me. And he nervously asked me, how did things go with your ticket? He said I didn't say a word I just stared at him and then finally I said you should swing at everything <laughs> <laughs> years ago one of our boys was playing a basketball game at the middle school and Beth and I were there and it's one of those afternoon games on a Thursday when you know there's only 50 people in the whole gym and it's you know all you hear is the ball bouncing and the tennis shoes on the floor and the cheerleaders you know chirping a little bit And, you know, there's there's like this cultural permission given to us that it's socially acceptable to go to a basketball game, in Indiana at least, and just scream at a referee. I don't know where that permission was given, but it's just perfectly acceptable. You can just get as red-faced, shake your fist, and scream at referees, and it's okay. Now, I have a theory that most of the time when folks are screaming at referees, it has nothing to do with the referee or the game or anything happening in the gym. It has something to do with, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not getting along with his wife or something at home, and he needs a place to ventilate because he's angry about something. Well, I was there uh, on that afternoon, and Beth was sitting next to me, and we were sitting midcourt right behind the scorer's bench. And there as I said, there weren't 50 people in the room, and so just normal conversation could almost be heard by everyone. So if you raised your voice just a little bit, and I have this rule, and Beth will testify to this. I am so careful about that. I just, I, I, I'm self-conscious about it. It's not that I'm not feeling something, but I just, I just will not allow myself to, you know, just be out of line, you know, publicly. It's just not good. And so she knows, and she'll tell you. Uh, now, I have to try to control her a lot uh, from time to time. <laughs> but I'm usually a good boy in these kind of settings, that damn must have been having a bad moment or something but this referee was just starting to annoy me and then it had an accumulative effect and it was starting to build up and I'd had enough and so I'm sitting there and where I was sitting behind the scores table, uh, I was just about eye level with someone who'd be standing up on the floor and so this young, young man, this referee, came over to report a foul he'd made and that foul I disagreed with and that was it, that was the last straw and so he walks over, and now where I was sitting, where he was standing, we are only about 12 feet apart, and so I leaned forward, and I, sh- I shifted my body language to get his attention, hoping he would, and I, and I did it, it worked, and he looked up, and we made eye contact. So we're just like this, t- 12 feet away, and then I said loud enough for everyone in the room to hear, everyone in the hallway, everyone in the parking lot, I looked at him, and I shouted, you're terrible, just like that. And you know it just—it's—it stunned him. I mean, he, his body language went, oh, you know, I just. I thought, okay, he heard me. Now, now he knows the truth. It's fine. I got my message across. When you do that, though, at the ball game, you just dismiss that, and you don't think another thing about it. And I, you know, I felt a little bad because I go, you know, God, I wish I hadn't have done that. You know, that's out of character. I feel bad about that. But I, oh well, a, who cares? That was on a Thursday. On Sunday, I finished my sermon, and one of our parishioners came smiling up to me because he'd brought a friend with him to church that day. <laughs> and I, I was introduced to his friend, and I, I, I recognized him immediately. This is the second time now in three days we were looking at each other eye to eye. And he had recognized me long before that moment that morning. And so I looked at him, and the first thing I said to him, I smiled, and I said, I'm really sorry. <laughs> and he goes, he was so gracious. He said, that's okay. He said, at least while you're you preaching, I didn't stand up and say, you're terrible. <laughs> yeah. But we don't normally experience grace from other people, but God shows you grace 24 hours a day. I mean, the next breath you're going to take is because God's grace. It's a gift. Everything that you have, everything you enjoy, everything good and pleasing and acceptable about life is the gift of God. It comes from His grace. It's a, it's, it's a gift. And you say, wait a minute, I earned everything I have. I, I deserve everything I have. But wait, wait a minute, where did you get the power to earn what you have? Where did you get your brains? Where did you get your health? Where did you get your mind? Where did you get your arms? Where did you get your capacity? It all comes from God. Literally every single thing in your life is because God is good and gives you what you need and not always what you deserve. How many of you are glad you to get what you need from God, and not always what you deserve? I'm happy about that. And sometimes we don't get it. Ephesians 1.8 says, God has showered upon us the riches of his grace, for he understands us and knows what is best for us all the time. So he knows what's best. He's watched every moment of your life. He knew you before you were born. He knew you in your mother's womb. He saw you take your first breath. He's, he's seen you utter every word in your life. He's watched you do every, every deed in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's seen it all, and he still knows what's best for you and desires to give what you need, not what you deserve. Sometimes we think we have to help out God's grace. I heard the story of a guy who bought his wife a one-year, a one-year service maid service for the home, so that every Thursday morning the maid would show up and clean their house. What a great, great thing, right? What a nice thing. Women in the room go, well, wouldn't that be nice? Beth and I actually talked about doing this at one time, but I thought it through, and I could see, I could predict the future, and I knew what would happen. And it's what happened in this guy who told the story originally. He said his wife hated it, and he learned to hate it. Why was that? Because every Thursday morning, they would have to get up at his wife's urging at 6.30 in the morning, an hour and a half before the maid showed up, to clean the house. Because she said, we can't have people thinking we're slobs. (laughs) We've got to clean up this house, pick up this house before the maid gets here. (laughs) We've got company coming to the house. It has to be clean. He said it was a disaster. But that's the point, isn't it? Sometimes we misinterpret God's grace and we think in order to come to God and receive his forgiveness that we have to somehow straighten it up first. We have to clean our lives up and tidy up the loose ends and get our act together and get our affairs in order. I mean, my life is just too unkept to come to God. That just won't work. But that's a misunderstanding of grace. Grace says, look, I love you just the way you are. I've seen every moment of your life. And I still care about you. I still love you and have a wonderful design for your life. Grace, then, is about receiving this gift of God because all of it is a gift. It comes to us freely. There was a group of scholars who were debating the question, what makes Christianity unique in all of world religion? And these scholars were debating this subject, and it was very intense, and you had Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Christians at the table, and they were all trying to figure out in that particular session... What made Christianity unique among all the other religions? And one man had stepped out, one of the Christian scholars, and he came back into the room, and they were in the midst of the discussion, and he said, tell me, what what subject are you on right now? And they said, we're trying to decide the uniqueness of the Christian faith from all the other religions of the world. And he immediately smiled and said, well, that's easy. He said, it's grace. It's grace. Because every one of us in this room today, we have a sense of oughtness. There's an intuition that all of us have that suggests to us that we ought to be better than we are, that we ought to do better than we do, that we ought to perform at a higher level than we perform. There's something wrong with me, and I ought to try harder. I ought to do better. And there are some religions that are based on that intuition, and it simply says, you know, if I can just do more good in my life than the bad that accumulates, then the scales will tip in, in, toward the good side, so when I die, I'll, I'll go to a good place, not a bad place. And so, and, so, and so I've got to try hard, and I've got, to, I've got to work my way. i got one angel on one shoulder and another on the other shoulder, and I've, got to, I've just got the preponderance of the evidence has to fall one direction. So I, so I want to get this right. And most of the world's religion kind of focus on that, sense of oughtness. But Christianity is completely different from that. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been declared good news because it's not about what you do, but rather what he has done for us. It's not about your merit, your performance, your goodness as a human being, but rather on the merits and performance and goodness of one human being who gave his life as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of us all. And so this gift now has been expressed to us by God. So that it's not how you clean up your life or tidy up your life or, or somehow ready yourself to be a godly person. It's simply submitting yourself just as you are before a holy and merciful God who said, I'll demonstrate my love for you to show you just how serious I am about this whole thing. I'm going to give my own son, my very one and only son, to die in your place. What you deserved, he took. And so I'm willing to give you what you need, not what you deserve, based on the merits. Of my, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of my son Jesus Christ. So, the gift of eternal life is this wonderful expression of grace. It's unmerited, it's unearned. You can't buy it, you can't achieve it, you can't get there. It's given freely. It's a wonderful thing. Grace is what distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions in the world. And by the way, God doesn't care about your religion. We get all caught up in the distinctions and the differences, but it's not about that. God doesn't care about the religion. Listen, if you're a Roman Catholic or you're a Buddhist or you're a Hindu, you've, you've been considering Islam or whatever it is. God doesn't care about all that stuff. What he cares about is having a relationship with you. And he's gone to the extreme expense of offering his very own son in order to satisfy the demands of justice in the world. So that your sins, the offenses that you have created against a holy and just God have been eradicated by the work and merits of Jesus Christ. I'm glad when I stand before God someday that I won't have to give an account for myself or defend myself. What do you have to say for yourself? Look, I'm indefensible. I know my life. I got no chance in a moment like that by myself. That's why the Bible says if you say yes to this gift of life that God will provide for you an advocate who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So my lawyer on my day of judgment is going to be Jesus, and Jesus is going to step up and say, uh, Mr. Judge, look, this one you can, you can let go and exonerate because even though he's, he's a mess, uh, he's appropriated the gift that I have offered to him, and as you can see, he's wearing my clothes. And I, So Jesus actually takes his robe of righteousness and puts it on us when we accept this gift of life. It's good news. That's grace. That's grace. Open your heart to God's grace. Let me just offer this third thought. Open your mind to God's power. Open your heart to God's grace. And the third thing is to open your life to God's love. A thousand years ago, a thousand years ago from today, 1,000 years ago from today, God knew you'd be sitting in this room today. God knew you'd be there in the sanctuary at Union Chapel in Muncie, Indiana today. He knew you would be here. He knew you, in fact, from the foundations of the world. And He knew that you would be here in this moment and that you would be sitting here long enough and quiet enough to let someone like me tell you about this amazing opportunity of life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to receive God's love. Jesus said it this way. He said, I pray that Christ will live in you as you open the door, that is, talking about your life, and invite him in, and that you will be able to feel and understand how long and wide and deep and high his love really is, and to experience this love for yourselves. How high and wide and deep and long is the love of God, so you can understand it for yourself. Let me describe it this way. Jenny grew up on a cherry orchard near Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents were a little old-fashioned, and they tended to overreact when she got a nose ring and the way she played her music and the way she dressed. And one night, in an argument with her father, she screamed, I hate you. I never want to see you again." And that night she ran away and she caught a bus to Detroit. The second day in Detroit she met a man with the biggest car she'd ever seen. He offered her a ride, bought her lunch, gave her a place to stay, even gave her some pills that made her feel better than she'd ever felt in her life. The good life continued for Jenny for about a year. The man who called himself and now she called the boss taught her a few things that men like, and because she was underage, men would pay a premium for her. And she lived in a penthouse and ordered room service and got whatever she wanted. But after a year or so, she became ill, and her boss became mean. And soon she was out on the streets without a penny to her name. The little bit of money she had made turning tricks went to support her habit. One freezing night on the street, of Detroit, sleepless and hungry, Jenny felt an overwhelming longing to be back home. She thought about the cherry orchards, and her warm house, and her golden retriever dog, and through her sobbing, she called home three times, only to get the answering machine. On the third call, she left a message. She said, Mom, Dad, it's me. I want to come home. I'm catching the bus, and I'll be there about midnight tomorrow at the station. And if you're not there, I guess I'll just stay on the bus and ride it on to Canada, try to find a place there. Seven-hour journey on the bus the next day, she began to have doubts. What will I say? What will they think? Will there even be someone there to show up? When the bus finally rolled into the small station, the driver announced, 15 minutes. We're on a tight schedule only have 15 minutes. She felt the pressure of that. Her whole life kind of hung on the next 15 minutes. She was nervous and she grabbed a little compact mirror out of her purse and kind of fixed up her face a little bit. She was so afraid that no one would be there. And as she walked into the terminal... Nothing could have prepared her for what she saw. Forty people at midnight standing there. Uncles and aunts, cousins, brothers, sisters, grandparents, mom, and dad. Big banner went from side to side across the terminal. Welcome home. Dad leapt out of the crowd, raced over, and grabbed her. She said, "Dad, I'm so sorry." He said, "Shh, there's no time for apologies." He said, "We plan a big party. We got to get home." Friends, that's a true story, and it's also a pretty good picture of the unconditional love that God has for you. When you come home to God and say, God, you made me, but I've been disconnected from you and maybe disconnected all my life, but I want to come home, God will throw a party for you. He says, welcome home. Welcome into my arms of love. If you haven't heard anything I've said in this message today, I want you to hear this one statement. I put it on the screen, so maybe it'll connect with you. You were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense to you. You'll never sort it out. There will always be a puzzle, a question, an uncertainty, an unsteadiness. You were made by God and for God. And until you get that, Life just won't make sense. And I want to leave that with you today. The Bible says that God throws a party for you when you come home. The Bible says we throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that He has already thrown His door open to us. And friends, here's what we know. Easter gives us the power to start over. And Jesus gives us the power to keep going. And that's what life's about. God made you to love you. And God made you to love Him. And I invite you to cross the line. You know, here at Union Chapel, we we imagine a line, a spiritual line. And we ask people to take a step over the line. From wherever you are in your relationship with God right now to the next step in your relationship to God. Step toward Him. Because you'll find there a God who's not angry. But a Father whose arms are welcoming and open and loving. And so I want to pray with you this, this morning, and I've been doing this all weekend for, our, for folks in our services. I want to pray for you, and then I want to pray with you. My invitation to you is just step over that line. Step over the spiritual line. Receive God's life and His grace and His love. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, I know there are people here today in this service who've never begun a relationship with you. They know about you. They know you exist but they haven't really gotten to know you personally. So today, I pray that this Easter, you will give them the courage to open their minds, open their hearts, open their life to you. Now let me pray with you. Let me, let me say the words out loud. You, you hear them and believe them in your mind and heart. Just say them in your heart to God, and hear, He'll hear your prayer. Dear God, I'd like a fresh start in my life. I don't want to stay the same. I know there are things in my life that need changing. And so as much as I know how, I want to open my mind to your power and my heart to your grace. Thank you for loving me, for forgiving me. I admit I don't understand it all, but I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for my sins. So today I'm asking you to help me understand that more. Jesus Christ, I want to open up my life to your love and your grace and your power so that I can authentically, genuinely change. I want to get to know you. So today I invite you to be the manager of my life. Take control from this day forward to start making the changes in me that I so much need. Help me to learn to trust you. And for all the things you've done, thank you. And I pray in your name. Now say out loud with me the amen. Amen. Amen.